Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Thank you all to joining me for at home for joining me this hour. I am not Ari Melber. I am Alex Wagner. This is the beginning of a two-hour rock block thick with news. We begin here. It is a moment that you are forgiven if you don't remember it or if you missed it at the time. A lot happened on this day. But at his speech before the insurrection on January 6th, President Trump had a lot to say about bias on the Supreme Court. You know, look, I'm not happy with the Supreme Court. They love to rule against me. And the Supreme Court, they rule against me so much. You know why? Because the story is, I haven't spoken to any of them, any of them, since virtually they got in. But the story is that they're my puppet, right? That they're puppets. And now the only way they can get out of that, because they hate that, it's not good on the social circuit, that the only way they get out is to rule against Trump. So let's rule against Trump. And they do that. Now, in reality, the current Supreme Court is one of the most conservative courts in modern history. They are the court that overturned Roe and ended affirmative action. All practically speaking, it gave us Citizens United. Conservatives dominate this bench, six to three. But Donald Trump is not completely wrong in his complaint that the court has ruled against him. This court does have a history of ruling against Trump in his personal capacity. The court let prosecutors in New York gain access to his financial records. It declined to hear Trump's bogus 2020 election challenges. It rejected Trump's attempt to withhold documents from the House January 6th committee. It allowed the House Ways and Means Committee to obtain Trump's tax returns. And it declined Trump's attempt to have the court intervene in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. But tonight, when faced with an issue that could very well determine Trump's accountability for his actions on January 6th, tonight the high court appears to have done, at least for now, exactly what Trump wanted. In a single line order this afternoon, the court declined Jack Smith's request to quickly take up the question of presidential immunity. Instead, the court punted that issue back to an appeals court for now. The Supreme Court did not explain its reasoning here, and there were no noted dissents. Just that what you see on your screen is all we got. Now, Trump's lawyers have been arguing that the entirety of the special counsel's election interference case should be just thrown out on the premise that Trump cannot be prosecuted because of presidential immunity. And with that question undecided, the entire case has been put on hold jeopardizing the scheduled March 4th trial date and potentially pushing this trial into campaign season in the summer or past the 2024 election entirely. Today's Supreme Court decision makes that delay all the more likely. And it is worth noting that the court's own recent history here is quite interesting when it comes to the subject of expedited hearings. Since 2019, the court has taken up cases before they were heard by an appeals court 19 times. 
cases like whether governors were allowed to restrict church attendance during a pandemic, and whether affirmative action could be used in college acceptance decisions, and whether President Biden was allowed to forgive student debt. I mean, not to diminish the importance of any of those issues, but this one, whether or not the former president and maybe future president can stand trial for the events of January 6th, that seems certainly as big, if not bigger, than the issues the court has expedited quite recently. As Special Counsel Smith put it in his filing before the court yesterday, the charges here are of the utmost gravity. This case involves, for the first time in our nation's history, criminal charges against a former president based on his actions while in office. And not just any actions, alleged acts to perpetuate himself in power by frustrating the constitutionally prescribed process for certifying the lawful winner of an election. With the Supreme Court declining to fast-track this case, the question of presidential immunity now heads back to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia. And they are set to begin hearing oral arguments on January 9th. Joining me now is former FBI General Counsel Andrew Weissman and Assistant Professor of Constitutional Law at Georgia State University, Anthony Michael Christ. Thank you both for being with me this evening. Um, Andrew, what is your reaction to the court's very short denial here? Well, there's no question that, as you said, the Supreme Court did um, give Donald Trump a victory in the sense that he wanted uh, the court to not take this sort of out of turn uh, review. He wanted the normal procedures to apply. Some irony there, since it's under his administration that there have been an, an enormous number of requests to leapfrog the, the circuit courts. I wasn't that all that surprised, though, and I think people should take a deep breath because the the issue here is that the D.C. Circuit has moved so quickly um, because Jack Smith had asked that court to expedite its review and it has granted that. So uh, both sides are briefing that over the holidays and the new year. Uh, full briefing will be done on January 2nd and oral argument is going to be heard on January 9th. The import of which is that if you're on the Supreme Court, you're really talking about a matter of what's likely to be a couple of weeks of delay, not months and months because of the D.C. Circuit um, acting so quickly. I think the real issue to everyone should keep their eye on is once the D.C. Circuit rules, how quickly um, will that the circuit either uh, get rid of the automatic stay so that Judge Chutkin can go forward or the Supreme Court will take review and expedite its review. So I think that's the real issue is to focus on what happens once the D.C. Circuit rules. Yeah, and I absolutely want to come back to those scenarios. But because, um, Professor Christ, this this issue may ultimately once again end up at the Supreme Court, I just wonder if you take away anything from the decision today and the fact that there are no noted dissents. I am not a court watcher, but I wonder if there's anything to be inferred from that. Well, <clears throat> I, I don't think that we can infer too much because simply 
uh, put, I don't think the Supreme Court wants to be seeing uh, as running interference for prosecutors against Donald Trump um, more than they have to. And so there's a very good chance, for example, that with this expedited review in the D.C. Circuit, that you'll see uh, a, a, a decision that's um, basically in, in Donald Trump's, uh, you know, uh, or I guess it's like Donald Trump will lose in the D.C. Circuit. Um, and it could be the case that the, the Supreme Court just won't even hear the case at all. Um, but they, I think we also have to understand that there's a lot of a litigation um, related to Donald Trump in election that is pending before the Supreme Court. Not only do we have this question of, of presidential immunity, but there's a possibility of an appeal from the Colorado decision to kick uh, Trump off the ballot. There's also the January 6th prosecution uh, case about what constitutes a corrupt, uh, you know, disruption of a government uh, uh, operation. So, so there's a lot of election-related, January 6th-related, 2020 election-related litigation that is pending before the court. And I think that they're probably uh, afraid of just taking on too much too quickly or being seen as being overly eager uh, to hand Donald Trump losses. I am. I am. I understand that this is now being framed, Andrew, as an expedited process here is inevitably to Donald Trump's detriment. But I mean, the case that the special prosecutor was making is that this is about the American public having all the information at, at hand as they nominate someone in one of the two political parties in this country and potentially vote for him in the general election. And I guess I kind of resist the idea that somehow you know, expediting that process by which Donald Trump goes on trial and is could very well be, you know, proven innocent is somehow a partisan act. Is, am I wrong to, to, to not see how expediting is not partisan? You're not wrong at all. And I would add to that that the issue of the timing of the trial is technically not is not really something that the D.C. Circuit or the Supreme Court um, should be weighing in on because that issue was fully litigated and briefed to Judge Chutkin, and she made a ruling that consistent with due process, the trial could go forward on March 4th. So these are all sort of operating as sort of pocket vetoes of that considered decision. And I, I really do want to commend the Department of Justice's brief here, and I'm trying to be very dispassionate, but the way they wrote the interest here was they were saying that the issue about how immunity works or doesn't work here is one that the entire nation has an interest in knowing whether their president can commit crimes while in office uh, and under what circumstances, if any, and that regardless of whether Donald Trump is convicted or acquitted, the country has an interest in knowing the answer to that before the election. And so they're trying to frame this in a very dispassionate way, which is which, you know, as now as a, just a, a citizen no longer being part of the Department of Justice, I think that that is exactly what you want from the Department of Justice, is that this is something that whether you are Republican or Democratic, to your point, Alex, um, this is something that people have a right to and it's consistent with the rights of the defendant here, Donald Trump. Yeah. And I, I, Professor Price, I, just in terms of recent history, I mean, do we have the full screen? The, the court has taken up a lot of expedited cases in since 2019 or even, I believe, 2018. I think we have a graphic of it. I'm not sure. I mean, for a long time, that doesn't have the years on it. Uh, but that's, I believe, since 2019. I think it's like 20 cases that they've expedited. 
on a variety of matters. Prior to that, I think they took up like eight cases or 10 cases after the Nixon case. This is something this court does with relative frequency. And I wonder why this didn't rise to the level of, for example, President Biden's attempt to cancel student loan debt. Yeah, I I think we all have to recognize that the United States Supreme Court is a political institution. Um, Though it is a court, it it has, you know, some it has some partisan interests. um, And it also is considering uh, the broader political dynamics of what is beneficial to the majority of the court. And so um, I, I don't think that there is a really eager or, or kind of earnestness by the majority of the court to hand Donald Trump multiple losses and, and to be seen as weighing in too quickly or to be, you know, pushing the, the thumb on the scales against Donald Trump, um, in a, in a way that'll, you know, in further, I, I think, jeopardize the court's legitimacy, at least from the majority's perspective. Um, and, and of course, it's true that there have been major cases that have had national significance. There's, there's a, uh, the, a great, case from the 1950s, the steel seizure case where Harry Truman uh, was trying to take over uh, steel mills that, that had a uh, labor dispute. Uh, the Supreme Court heard that on an expedited basis because it was such a, uh, a nationally important case. The same thing with the Nixon case. So so I think that this, this would certainly rise to that level. At the same time, we also have to acknowledge that while this is an incredibly important case in terms of speaking to the heart of our democracy and the meaning of American democracy, it is also a criminal trial, right? And so um, there, there may be a kind of of other factors weighing in there uh, where the court doesn't want to be, you know, doesn't want to appear to be short circuiting uh, the process for a criminal proceeding where they might be more willing to do so in, in a civil uh, proceeding that, that really only deals with constitutional interpretation uh, without any kind of prosecutorial consequences. Um, that, that brings us to what you, the sort of roadmap you were laying out here, Andrew, as far as the what happens now, right? It sounds like we're going back to the D.C. Appeal, Circuit Court of Appeals. That oral arguments begin January 9th. If you're gaming this out just by virtue of their recent sort of behavior on this topic, it seems like Trump could not win at the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which means either he goes to appeal at the Supreme Court and they take it up or they don't take it up at all and allow the circuit court decision to stand. Is that right? And then the big question. Is, ex- sorry, go ahead. Sorry. There, there's one extra piece, one before um, you get to the Supreme Court, which is that he could seek what's called en banc review, because the D.C. Circuit uh, panel that's hearing this is three judges on the D.C. Circuit. Um, if he loses there, and I agree with you, I think he is going to lose there. Um, if he does, he can then seek what's called en banc review of the whole court. I don't think that the whole court will hear it, but that's also potential delay. And then once that's decided, he can then seek Supreme Court review. Now, all of that could be truncated because the key issue, the main issue that is causing the problem for Jack Smith is that there's an automatic stay in effect. And the D.C. Circuit can get rid of that when they issue their decision and say that at least the litigation um, can go forward. Because remember, that automatic stay isn't stopping not just the trial, but all of the pre-trial work, the deciding of motions, the uh, jury questionnaires that are going out, all of the, the work that needs to be done to have a case be ready for trial is stayed right now. So that's something that I'm really keeping my eye on, which is, is the D.C. Circuit going to sort of say, you know what, that part of the case is going to now go forward. That will cause Donald Trump to have to move for a stay 
um, in the Supreme Court. Um, and, and that's where you really want to watch and see what the Supreme Court's going to do on that. Well, and then there's just the pure timing of the stay has been in place for a couple weeks. The D.C. Circuit Court would likely take a few weeks in January. And so that's effectively a four, five, six week loss of time for Judge Chudkin in terms of jury selection, et cetera. And we'll see whether she can make that up to stick to that March 4th trial date. A lot of unknown unknowns, as Donald Rumsfeld used to say, not something, a phrase that you frequently hear from my mouth. Andrew Weissman and Anthony Michael Christ, thank you so much for spending part of what should be a holiday break with me in this early hour. I appreciate it. We have lots to get to this evening, including an inside look at one of the most effective propagandists in the so-called war on woke. But first, Ron DeSantis has finally figured out what to blame for his flailing campaign. And it is not Ron DeSantis. That's next. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. We are 25 days away from the first 2024 nominating contest, the Iowa caucuses. 25 days away. I myself had to check the calendar. Governor Ron DeSantis is 56 points behind Donald Trump, and he is tied for second place with former Governor Nikki Haley, according to recent national polling. His main super PAC, Never Back Down, recently named its third CEO in two weeks because the other ones apparently backed down. But to hear Ron DeSantis tell it, the problem here is not him. If I could have one thing change, I wish Trump hadn't been indicted on any of this stuff. I mean, honestly, I, I think that, you know, from Alvin Bragg on, um, I've criticized the cases. I think, you know, someone like a Bragg would not have brought that case if it was anyone other than Donald Trump. And so, you know, he someone like that's distorting justice, which is bad. But I also think it distorted the primary. Um, and I think it's it's been it's been that those have kind of been the main issues that have happened because it's helped last, him. Is that what you're saying? And so therefore it's, it's both, both that. But then it also is just crowded out. I think so much other stuff, and it sucked out a lot of oxygen. Joining me now is Mark Leibovich, staff writer for The Atlantic. Mark, thank you for being here on what should be your holiday break. I appreciate it. Um, it boggles the mind that even now, as his is, it feels like his campaign is circling the drain. Ron DeSantis can still not articulate the reality of Donald Trump in this race and his inability to take on Trump. What do you make of his assessment of the problems in this race? 
and the oxygen sucking of the indictments. Well, I mean, it's a perfect distillation of Ron DeSantis's kind of feckless inability to take Trump on under any circumstances. I mean, you know, in, in a different world, you could see see a president who's been indicted multiple times or a former president who's been indicted multiple times and a what was a chief challenger to him um, less than a year ago saying, hey, look, I mean, this is a kind of drama that we didn't want this campaign to be about. This is squarely the fault of Donald Trump. I want presidential candidates not to be indicted, ideally. And it would be nice if we didn't have to run a primary campaign about this and was instead about issues or things like that. Instead, he sort of said this passive, you know, oh, I'm such a victim of this kind of tone in there. And again, it's emblematic of his complete, really inability to articulate anything and also to run in any kind of like pointed way against Donald Trump. I I guess on some level, I'm not that surprised that Ron DeSantis refuses to bow out. I mean, all things being equal, he's not the the least popular person in the Republican primary. Um, there's like a weirdly high bar to clear that because there's so many unpopular people. But um, Chris Christie, I must ask you about, who did not qualify to get on the main primary ballot because he did not get the number of needed signatures required. Now, I understand that Christie's in there sort of for like ideological purposes. But what really is the point in staying on any longer? Well, I mean, that's a question I'm sure he's asking himself. I mean, Chris Christie, I mean, it's not so much ideological. It's sort of more of a self-respect campaign on his part. I mean, he um, he had, you know, he lost quite a bit, I think, during, due to his initial alliance with Donald Trump. It was sort of an unholy alliance from 2016 to 2021. And he basically decided to get into the race and prosecute a case against Donald Trump, which I think he did very effectively in a number of debates. And, you know, it's not moving the needle that much for him, although he did sort of reputation gained back, I think, a lot of the credibility he lost a few years ago in the first go-around. So, you know, the question is, as you said, I mean, he, he does have a ceiling here. I think he's clearly cutting into Nikki Haley's, um, you know, just sort of slice of the pie here and probably at some point has to ask himself whether he wants to be a spoiler here. But I think if you sort of look at where they started, uh, Christie v. DeSantis here, I mean, DeSantis had so many expectations. I mean, people were really investing a lot of hope into him as a alternative to Trump. And he's just been nothing but a floundering campaign since he got in. And, you know, Christie, I mean, obviously, he's, it doesn't look like he's going to win. But, I mean, he's actually come somewhere and, and uh, DeSantis, on the other hand, has been nothing but a disaster. So, I mean, it's all relative. And ultimately, they're both way behind Donald Trump. But I think they both sort of gone in different directions. Well, I mean, if the point of Christie's, uh, you know, remaining in this race is reputational rehabilitation, at a point, he's going to endanger all of that by staying in the race if Nikki Haley really is the viable anti-Trump alternative. I'm hesitant to even call her an anti-Trump alternative because she's done a very, is it nimble? I don't know. She's done a job um, trying to avoid criticizing Trump while also sort of suggesting that she is not a huge supporter of his. Um, But I mean, in, in that way, I wonder whether you think we should, as Ben Smith was writing in Semaphore, being be paying greater attention to this primary process, precisely because you're seeing the rise of Nikki Haley. I think she's only four points behind Trump in New Hampshire. Like, is this more of a race than we imagine it to be? I, I think it is. Um, and it's not just because, you know, I, I want to see a raise. I mean, I think it would be good for the Republican Party and good for the country to see actually a real Republican debate. But I think, you know, I think Haley's recent momentum is real. And I think it'll become more so if Christie gets out between here and New Hampshire, which 
I, I think he might. I mean, you know, who knows? I mean, he can do math as well as anyone else. And and he sort of, again, he would sort of, he, he seems to be hurting her would if he stayed in much longer. But I do think that, look, if, if Haley gets a clean shot at Trump and, you know, that would require Christie probably getting out, maybe DeSantis, you know, if he doesn't perform well in Iowa or New Hampshire, possibly getting out. Um, you know, it could be really interesting because, yes, she hasn't really attacked him that frontally. But there's also not a lot of evidence that that attacking Donald Trump and sort of um, sort of litigating like all of the things that he's in trouble for will actually help a Republican opponent. Um, you know, it could be a really interesting race going forward, because I do think that there are a lot of anti-Trump people coalescing around around Haley in a way that could be pretty real going forward. Do you think it matter? I mean, is it is it a coverage issue that that Haley needs to have a more sort of bona fide shot of taking down Trump? Or is it really winning over the sort of MAGA echo chamber? Because that seems to be truly instrumental in Trump's fortunes. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I don't I don't think she's going to win over the MAGA echo, echo chamber. I mean, they're already attacking her. I mean, clearly, you know, there, there is a sign that, that the Trump campaign is is threatened by her a little bit more than they were a couple of months ago. Um you know, Nikki Haley has yet to prove that she really is going to go sort of full, you know, full bore into this campaign and meaning like against Trump. I mean, I do sort of wonder what it would look like if she loses a few primaries. You know, will she really go to the mat against him or will she kind of, um, you know, fold pretty early and, and say, look, I'm, I'm a team player and she's young enough to know that like she might have another shot. But no, but I do think, like I said before, I mean, I do think that her campaign and her momentum is real. And I think Trump you know, is probably more afraid of her than they've said publicly so far. And I think we'll see that. Well, he is out there saying immigrants poison the blood of our country. And Nikki Haley is, of course, the daughter of immigrants. Daughter of immigrants. Mark Leibovich, my friend, thank you for your holiday hours. I appreciate them. Have a great new year. You too, Alex. See you in the new year. We have a lot more to get to, including an eye-opening look at the people behind a series of right-wing videos being shown to school children across the country. That exclusive report is next. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley. For the love of home.
For years, conservatives in positions of power in America have been on the offensive against public education under the banner of parental rights. In Florida, Governor Ron DeSantis has signed bills limiting what teachers can say about race and gender in the classroom. In his first executive order as Virginia's governor, Glenn Youngkin banned the teaching of critical race theory. Over in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has been pushing to give school vouchers to students so they can flee woke public schools for private institutions using taxpayer dollars. But long before Governors DeSantis and Youngkin and Abbott, there was Dennis Prager, a conservative radio host who has made it his mission to save children from what he calls liberal indoctrination. If you're spending a good part of the day uh, uh, teaching kids about preferred pronouns and uh, and other what we call woke issues, then you you're really not teaching them. In 2009, Dennis Prager founded Prager U, a nonprofit conservative media organization that produces what it calls educational videos that offer a conservative perspective on a wide range of topics, topics from slavery to economics. Since then, Prager U has become a powerful propaganda machine for the right, one that is reaching millions of students every year, one five-minute video at a time. NBC's Antonia Hilton got an inside look at Prager U. This is her special report. Action. Time to read Otto's Tales. Let's meet a police officer. In a studio tucked away in an unassuming corner of Los Angeles, a group of creators and illustrators are churning out content for kids. You think about Prager. Under the direction of a former educator turned CEO, Marissa Strait. All right, so these are our editors, our illustrators. This isn't Nickelodeon or Disney, but some of these artists left those studios, drawn by the self-described pro-American patriotic values of nonprofit media company PragerU. How did you recruit them? How did they find out about PragerU? They have young kids. They themselves are uh, upset with what they're seeing that is produced in our culture. You have somebody like Caleb here uh, who has young kids, and instead of working for a place where he feels like he's part of a problem, he is now part of a solution. The problem they see is a public education system too focused on diversity, equity, and LGBTQ issues. One that emphasizes the tough chapters in our history instead of American exceptionalism. We do teach about the horrors of slavery, but I don't think that young black Americans should be taught that there is no hope and that the system is set up against them. Why is it a good thing to teach your child that you live in a hole? That is not a good thing. There is so much opportunity. Look at you. Look at you. You are so successful. I never right? said I, I thought right. I lived in a Many conservatives feel they're fighting an existential battle between good and evil, right and left. Their concerns have fueled recent book bans and bills in dozens of states seeking to restrict how teachers can talk about history. Sorry to be late. Founder Dennis Prager has shared his controversial views on race and history as a national radio show host for years. The left has made it impossible to say the N-word any longer. That's disgusting. It's a farce. It's the only word that you can't say in the English language. Of course, you should never call anybody the N-word. He says he created PragerU in 2009 to promote American values through creative educational videos. 
Historians and educators have warned that the content is distorted and propaganda. But since the pandemic, they've more than doubled revenue and reached over 9 billion lifetime views. So are you just in a race for who can indoctrinate the kids first, who can win their hearts and minds? To a certain extent, I guess you, you, might, you might have to put it that way. But I, I want their doctrines taught. They don't want ours taught. What I hear from teachers of every background is that they are slammed from block to block. They are underpaid. They are underappreciated. And that they don't even have time to talk about pronouns, gender theory, critical race theory. What I don't believe that they're telling you the truth. I actually think they're lying to you. You I'm think sorry. all of the teachers not are all. lying No, to you. not at all. If, look at the teachers' unions' positions. The teachers' unions are among the most radical groups in the United States of America. We'll be fine. I promise. PragerU's goal is to release at least 20 hours of new videos per week and to add states like Texas to a list of official educational partners that already includes Florida, New Hampshire, and Oklahoma. Superintendent of Public Instruction Ryan Walters has come out all the way from Oklahoma. Oklahoma, a state with a painful history of racism, is a proud PragerU partner. Their schools have not been ordered to use PragerU in classrooms, but some teachers like Gabe Woolley are choosing to use it on their own. I don't want my students to think and believe that slavery only happened in America and it only happened with these two groups of people because that does not explain to them what slavery is. And now for a brief history of slavery. This lesson is delivered by conservative commentator Candace Owens, who once told lawmakers white supremacy was not hurting black Americans. Here's the first thing you need to know. Slavery was not invented by white people. She's immediately on the defensive. And we're almost halfway through the video and there's no acknowledgement. She's, she's giving credit mostly to white people right now for ending it before the acknowledgement of the pain that some of your students might actually know about and feel in their families, right? Right. And there's a lot of content that we cover that does cover that aspect. On social media, I come across extraordinary depictions about how Africans lived like pharaohs before Europeans came and laid waste to their paradise. I wish any of this were true, but it's not. Okay, I have to pause the video there because I also know that that wasn't completely accurate. There were massive libraries and inventions and unbelievable cultures, but that's what she made it look as though there wasn't a culture, there wasn't a society there that if you're a black student watching that, you might leave feeling like your culture was disrespected. I want to make sure that what I'm showing is maybe filling in some gaps of things that we just don't hear commonly through history. Wooly says he sees PragerU as a supplement, not substitute. He now teaches at a local charter school and believes it's parents, not teachers, who should talk to kids about LGBTQ identities or movements like Black Lives Matter. What if public school is the only place they can find a trusted adult to talk to about these issues? What if they need to learn about them from someone like you? I think that there is an appropriate age and time for everything. But families like the Reyes, who are a mix of white, Choctaw, and Mexican-American, say teachers were never trying to turn their kids woke. They agreed to watch some PragerU videos with us and give us their honest take. White people were the first to formally put an end to slavery. Now, am I saying that this makes white people better than anyone else? Of course not. Something that I noticed was no other culture did anything. No other culture 
tried to stop slavery, which I know that isn't true. We also watched Prager characters Leo and Layla, who go back in time to visit historical figures like Christopher Columbus. I'm sorry, Mr. Columbus, but I heard at school that you spoiled paradise and you brought slavery and murder to peaceful people. Leo? <laughs> sorry. It's what I read and heard at school. Caramba! Those are some accusations. So, I definitely think this is pointing towards how Christopher Columbus is a good guy, but that just kind of stuck in my brain because I liked it more than reading from a book with scratched up pictures. Clearly, it, it it's just really trying to make him out to be this great person who didn't do anything. Back at their Los Angeles headquarters, I asked Dennis Prager if he takes those concerns into account. Take the Christopher Columbus video. The perspective of indigenous people isn't really evident in that video. The video, A Short History of Slavery, at no point do they actually talk about what American slavery was really like? Why leave all that out? If, if this is about the truth they, and about so additional context, why leave that out? If you feel that way, I promise you, on camera, we will make a video on how terrible slavery was. The opinion of the entire company. CEO Marissa Strait expects to fill this space with hundreds of new writers and illustrators, people who are so dedicated to the cause, they're willing to move to liberal Los Angeles. I don't actually believe that America is going to be taken down by bullets and tanks. I think that if America would be taken down, it's through the erosion of the values and the ideas that have made our country what it is today. If we keep seeing this as a war on either side, is this going to end well? Nobody chooses to be in a war. I think it's incumbent upon us as parents and defenders of, of children to take this war this aggression against our society and our children seriously. And so if I have to use a terminology that makes some people uncomfortable, so be it. Antonia Hilton joins me to talk about that investigation into the heart of the culture wars coming up next. In 2021, Republican Glenn Youngkin became governor of Virginia after running a campaign focused on parental rights and against alleged leftist indoctrination. The next year, Republicans all over the country followed that lead, and they unleashed a barrage of legislation that attacked public schools, assaulted teachers' educational freedom, whitewashed the teaching of black history, banned books, and attacked transgender rights. The next front in the right-wing culture war in the classroom is the battle over who gets to write the curriculum itself. Conservative groups are now pushing content with a conservative focus, a conservative focus, a corrective to what they're terming the woke agenda that they claim is indoctrinating American children. Some of that content is courtesy of a company called PragerU Kids. Here's a sampling. America is more than just a place on a map. It's an ideal and a set of values stemming from Judeo-Christian principles. Despite what some confused people think, masculinity is not toxic. Most gender stereotypes exist because they reflect the way that men and women are naturally different. Eventually, all socialist countries face serious scarcity of basic needs. 
Joining me now is NBC correspondent Antonia Hilton, who is back from a reporting trip to PragerU headquarters. Antonia, it is a masterful piece. It is ex- it's very thorough. And you had got access to the PragerU sort of heads, creators and spokespeople. It's very, very enlightening. And thank you. Kudos, props on on the piece. Um, Thank you, Alex. Let me just first start with, we, we played a little bit of sound from some of the PragerU lessons, but in your, in your piece, it really feels like and sounds like one of the major fault lines here is race and the way in which American children are taught about race and the legacy of racism, whether that is slavery or the Civil War or the Civil Rights Movement or even the Black Lives Matter movement. Can you talk about that a little bit and, and what sort of animated, what issues in particular animated the PragerU conservatives who are part of this organization? Yeah, I think you got that exactly right. And I think that's kind of encapsulated at first in my conversation that you see with the CEO, Marissa Strait, at the beginning, where she's describing to me that one of her concerns with our education system around the country is that it's teaching young people, both people of color and white students, that our country is, um, she used an expletive, um, but, you know, garbage or not great. um, And that it gives children, particularly black children, a sort of victim mindset. I pushed back on that in a number of different ways. You see some of it there, um, you know, telling her that I myself as a student who went through public school here in America was never made to feel that way, despite knowing as a descendant of slaves uh, about the realities and the horrors here. But there is this sort of stark divide over this idea of what learning about these issues might do to or mean for children. For many teachers who identify, you know, all along the political spectrum, they believe and are excited about history. They tell me that they think it's empowering. They see students ask interesting questions. They try to foster debate. And they tell me they rarely see students leaving the classroom feeling guilty or feeling like victims or victors. Yeah. But what we see from some of the folks who are aligned with or who work with PragerU and and in the conversations you just saw there they see it differently. I mean, that's that's part of what has animated the legislation, right? This idea that if you talk about inequality, you uh, spend too much time on the way that racial difference has impacted our country's founding and uh, maybe the reality that people live with today, that that has a negative psychological impact and that it's anti-American, frankly. That's their view. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that she was talking about the Black experience and sort of pointing to you it doesn't really feel like their concern is with black children, but really white children who are made to feel, as you say, guilty when the lessons of slavery and the legacy of systemic racism is explored in the classroom. And I noticed, I mean, I don't know, maybe you can give me an assessment. It seemed like mostly white faces that were populating the, the PragerU confines. Uh, I wonder, you know, if you could talk a little bit more about the reach of PragerU uh, and, and the degree to which uh, classrooms around the country are adopting this material, which is not university affiliated, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're using it as teaching supplements. That's right. So the first thing to know is they are not a university. They are not accredited. And this is actually something that Dennis Prager is proud of. When I asked him about you know, whether or not they were going to seek accreditation at some point, he said, absolutely not. Um, and he uh, sort of leaned forward as he told me that with a lot of enthusiasm um, and wanted to make it very clear that they do not care about that kind of, um, you know, systemic process and approval work. So I think, you know, um, when you look at that interaction there between me and the CEO and 
this idea, I think you're we're starting to see this pick up stream and and pick up steam. I mean, around the country, and I mean, it's reflected in the fact that PragerU has about 10 billion almost lifetime views now. They have these partnerships in three states. Uh, they they have growing uh, meetings and relationships with leadership in states all over the country. They've had conversations with leaders in Texas, a massive state and a leader in education and textbook development in our country. And so, you know, there's a real question still about how far these partnerships really go, right? Because as I mentioned in the piece, they can't force teachers to use the material. It's an option, it's approved, but they can't go in and directly change someone's day-to-day lesson plan. What that may look like in the future, what leaders like the superintendent of schools in Oklahoma may do in terms of deepening those partnerships, I think is an open question. And I've spoken to teachers who are fearful that at some point that may become a requirement or there may be more direct interference with the work and the teachings that they do on a day-to-day basis. Antonia, it's a great piece. It's like I actually found my jaw dropping. And I've, you know, we've reported a lot on this. This is really... um, It's essential watching if you want to understand where the culture war is being waged and who is waging it. Thank you for your excellent reporting, Antonia. Thanks for joining me tonight. Thanks for having me. We will be right back hour with hour. We will be right back with another hour of very special holiday coverage of this show. Alex Wagner tonight. If you're not familiar with it, we're usually on at 9 p.m. Stay with us. Welcome back to our second hour of special live coverage. We are continuing to follow the breaking news that the Supreme Court will not take up a key question in the federal criminal case against Donald Trump. Trump and his lawyers have been arguing that the former president is immune from prosecution for any of the actions he took while president to try and overturn the 2020 election. The district judge overseeing the case, Judge Tanya Chutkin, has already ruled against Trump on this issue. But Trump's lawyers have appealed. In order to prevent the case from being further delayed, special counsel Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to weigh in on the matter right away, effectively leapfrogging the appellate court in order to expedite that final ruling. But today, in a one-sentence order, the Supreme Court denied his request. It is clearly a rejection of special counsel Smith's call for a swift decision on the merits. It is also a notable break with historical precedent. In 1974, at the height of the Watergate scandal, then-President Nixon was resisting attempts by then-Special Prosecutor Leon Jaworski to get his hands on what would come to be known as the Nixon tapes. The Special Prosecutor had asked the Supreme Court for an expedited review. Nixon, like Trump today, opposed swift action by the highest court. But the Nixon case, in the Nixon case, the Supreme Court agreed that the matter did deserve swift resolution— And it heard that case on an expedited basis. The U.S. Supreme Court, acting as swiftly as it ever has, today announced it will review the special Watergate prosecutor's complaint against President Nixon. It was just one week ago today when Leon Jaworski asked the court to rule on the president's defiance of a subpoena for more White House tapes. It was yesterday when the president's lawyer asked the court not to rush to judgment and allow the case to be heard in the Court of Appeals. That was how we got Nixon's Watergate tapes. The Nixon White House did not want to turn them over. As you heard John Chancellor say right there, the Nixon lawyers wanted the court to take its time. It asked them not to rush to judgment. That's an exact quote. And it is also the exact same argument that Donald Trump's lawyers made to this Supreme Court 
this time around. They called on the court not to, quote, rush to judgment. Now, in 1974, the Supreme Court didn't buy that argument. The matter was resolved in two months with the court's historic 8-0 decision determining that Richard Nixon had to surrender the tapes. They believe that the gravity of that matter involving a sitting U.S. president required an immediate response. But today, in the year 2023, this Supreme Court has decided the no-rush-to-judgment argument is good enough for them when it comes to a past and potentially future president. And that decision has significant implications for the question of accountability here. Because the Supreme Court is not choosing to weigh in quickly, Trump's team will now argue its case before a three-judge panel on the federal appeals court. Oral arguments in that appeal begin January 9th. If those judges rule against Trump, he can still appeal to the full D.C. appeals court, what is known as an on-bank ruling. And if he loses again with the full court, he can take up the issue with the Supreme Court again. What that all means for the trial's scheduled March 4th start date is anyone's guess. Joining me now is Josh Gerstein, senior legal affairs reporter at Politico, and Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Alabama and now an MSNBC legal analyst. Josh and Joyce, thank you for joining me. Jo- I'm Joyce, I would, I'm eager to hear your, your sort of thoughts and analysis about the Supreme Court decision and just how problematic it is potentially for that March 4th start date. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question, Alex, and it's very hard to give a meaningful answer because there are so many moving parts and so many variables. Um, this could just be a blip on the radar screen. It's possible, and Jack Smith asked the Supreme Court to be prepared to take this case immediately after the Court of Appeals decides it. So in an optimistic view, the Court of Appeals could move quickly, the Supreme Court could jump right in, and there could be a fast decision. But that's far from assured. And there's a much, I think, for people who would like to see this case tried before the election, there's a much darker path where the Court of Appeals takes a little bit more time. Trump expends the 45 days that he gets to ask for the rehearing on Bonk that you just asked for. He then gets 90 days to apply to the Supreme Court for certiorari. And there's no guarantee that they would move fast. They could move slowly. We could be theoretically looking at a situation where they don't decide the case until late June or early July. And we just don't know how this will go or if there's some in-between path. But the one sort of ray of hope that I see in today's decision, we don't know what the court's thinking is. It's just one sentence. But there are no recorded dissents. And if there was some feeling of doom on the court that Donald Trump was going to escape responsibility at the hands of the Supreme Court, I think we would have seen dissents from some of the liberal justices. And the fact that we didn't see those today gives me just a wee bit of hope. Josh, I know there's been a lot of speculation about how the court is going to rule on any number of items that are issues that appear on its horizon, whether it's the 14th Amendment uh, appeal that is, from, you know, coming as a result of the Colorado State Supreme Court or the question of obstruction of justice um, that's coming from one of the January 6 um, defendants that in turn may affect some of the same charges that Donald Trump is facing. Do you think I. I know I'm asking you to read tea leaves here, but do you think that there's any sort of effect that this decision will have on those other decisions that the court could take up? Well, I I think it's very rare, uh, Alex, for the court or the justices to acknowledge any interplay like that. But we do know 
uh, that sometimes that does happen in cases. I think back to the um, Obamacare case where it looked like some votes might have been traded there on two different aspects of that of that case. And so I could see a situation here, and I think a lot of legal analysts have said that this is possible, where the Supreme Court ultimately does allow some trial of former President Trump to go forward, a criminal trial, um, but, you know, puts other uh, issues like this 14th Amendment issue, which to many people I think is potentially more explosive, the notion of knocking Trump off the ballot in a lot of different states, uh, maybe doesn't allow that to happen, but does allow uh, the trials to occur. So it's hard to know what's going on behind the scenes, except as, as Joyce says, you know, there may be other reasons if there was consensus on this at the court. We don't know if it was five, four or nine to zero. Um, but, you know, th- they have been discussing, Alex, you showed that graphic a couple of times of all those decisions in the last few years where they agreed to accelerate cases. There's been a lot of dissension about that issue. Uh, and so perhaps this is one camp in that debate sending a signal to another camp in that debate. And hard as it may be to believe, it's not totally about Trump in this particular instance. It's just about factionalism on the court. Reassuring. Not really. Um, Joyce, all eyes now turn to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, right? Um, that court has been handling this case and this, this iteration of this case fairly expeditiously. Oral arguments start October, uh, January 9th. But I think it took them 20 months to decide the... Um, the presidential immunity defense in the civil case against Trump. Do you have any reason to believe, A, that it's going to take that long, or B, that they'll permit this stay to remain in place, which has effectively frozen all of the pretrial movement that is kind of necessary to keep the trains on the tracks? Right. So we have to understand what this motion is to take a look at those questions, because the motion to dismiss that Trump filed on the basis of presidential immunity is a dispositive motion. In other words, if he wins, the indictment is dismissed and this case is over. That's what sets this motion aside from other motions that Judge Chutkin has before her. And it's why that stay was issued in the first place, because there's a feeling that when you have a dispositive motion like this, where you've got a right to take an appeal in advance of trial, that you shouldn't have to have any additional litigation burden while that appeal is underway. You know, could the Court of Appeals remove the stay? They might decide that Trump's argument is so very weak here that no further stay is warranted, and they could theoretically do that, forcing him to ask the Supreme Court to reinstate it. So so that's one aspect of the problem. The timing issue is, I think, a very interesting one here, because you'll recall, Alex, we had this conversation about how slow it appeared that the Court of Appeals intended to move. Originally, they didn't ask Trump to even complete docketing, just the formal paperwork filing he needed to set this appeal in motion until the end of December. Then Jack Smith asked them to expedite, and they really did hop to. This was a fast briefing schedule. They will hear oral argument on January 9. They've permitted each side one hour for argument, so that hearing should be over that morning. And then it should be ready for a decision from from the panel. And I think we have every reason to believe that they will act quickly. You know, does that mean 11th Circuit quickly in the Mark Meadows appeal? The 11th Circuit issued their opinion on the first business day, the Monday following the Friday argument. Maybe they've set a standard that the D.C. Circuit will feel like it has to follow. What is that? I mean, 
No matter what has happened, Judge Chutkin is losing weeks here as this stay for as long as the stay remains in place. Even if it's lifted, if the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals finds for Jack Smith, let's say in the third week of January, that's still a loss of several weeks, Josh. And I wonder how you think that factors into anybody's ability to get a jury selected, to get through all the pretrial motions in time for a March 4th date. Well, I mean, I think realistically, the March 4th date is already in a lot of trouble. I mean, the jurors, as I understand it, were supposed to come in and fill out their questionnaires, the potential jurors on February 9th. Um, there's obviously back and forth that has to take place even before that occurs. And so it's hard to see, even if somehow this popped out of the Court of Appeals immediately, there were no other stays uh, decided and, and, you know, everything was back in gear by, say, the 15th or 20th of, of January. I still think there are a lot of problems getting that case ready for March 4th. The, the bigger problem right now is that if the case slips by more than a few weeks, uh, it starts to run into the other criminal trial that we haven't mentioned yet that President Trump is facing down in Florida on the classified information issue in, in Fort Pierce, Florida. And so, you know, that's set for May 20th and one trial just can't overlap with another one. And so uh, there is an issue already with that March 4th trial date. I think what the Supreme Court did today probably you know, puts another nail in the coffin of that date. But, you know, can things happen a couple weeks after that? I think it's still a possibility if things move along quickly. Can we talk about Mar-a-Lago? Because there has been some development on that front, Joyce. Um, Jack Smith was requesting a jury questionnaire go out on February 1st. Uh, Judge Aileen Cannon, um, who has thus far made decisions that I think Trump would not necessarily be upset about, has suggested that questionnaire not go out till the end of February. These are incremental movements, but they feel meaningful, Joyce. Am I wrong to read intent into all of this as far as pushing this trial date further and further down the line? Yes. So I think Jack Smith was, um, this is a technical legal term, poking the tiger a little <laughs> bit here to see what would happen if he tried to get the judge to take steps towards um, commencing trial. I think he's frankly testing the waters to see if she's serious about taking the case to trial or not. There's reason to believe she isn't from the way she's been handling some of the classified information rulings um, and not stacking things up in, in time. And if, for instance, she's not serious about her May trial date, that might leave room for a, a trial in Fulton County, Georgia, in that period of time. So you asked earlier about whether judges, you know, I think you were referencing the Supreme Court, look at other cases. Here, I think there are a lot of judges looking to other jurisdictions and trying to figure out who will be in a position to go first. It may well end up being the criminal case in Manhattan that's set for late March. Wow. Wouldn't that be um, ironic? It was the first one uh, in terms of the criminal cases, uh, and it may be the first one to go to trial. We will see a lot of unknowns. Josh Gerstein, Joyce Vance, thank you both so much for your time tonight. Thank you. We have a lot more ahead this hour, including a grim milestone reached today in the ongoing war between Israel and Hamas. My colleague Eamon Mohadeen joins me on that later this hour. But first... Nikki Haley is within striking distance of Donald Trump in the state of New Hampshire. Is she actually going to strike? More on that right after the break. Stay with us.
New polling in the state of New Hampshire shows GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley trailing frontrunner Donald Trump by just four points one month out from the state's first in the nation primary. But unlike most candidates who find themselves within striking distance of their opponent, former Governor Haley is towing a very careful line as far as what she will actually say about her most direct competitor. I don't know what to do with the fact that, to me, our former president is just a grave danger to the country and to the Christian church. So while I want to support you, I also want to hear from you that that you also think there's a danger here and that this is the way to stop this from happening. I wouldn't be running if I didn't think that he's not the right person at the right time. I have said multiple times, I don't think it's good for the country for Donald Trump to become president again. I've made that very clear. Joining me now is my colleague, Simone Sanders Townsend, host of MSNBC's Simone and The Weekend. Simone, thank you for being here to bring some holiday joy into my life, even <laughs> if we're talking about Republican candidates. Um, first, what did you make of Nikki Haley's answer there? Does that count as a playbook for other Republican candidates who are asked about Donald Trump? Or what was that? I, you know, Alex, I listened to that clip a couple times, and I think that was as close as anyone that's not Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, who are running for president, are willing to go to uh, criticize Donald Trump in front of the voters. Nikki Haley has been—what's interesting about her campaign is she's been very willing to tell you where she stands on key things, right? She is willing to say that Donald Trump messed up the deficit and added trillions of dollars to it while he was president. She is willing to, to tell you where she stands on when it comes to the war in Ukraine and aid to Israel. But she's very murky when it comes to her stance on abortion. And even a little more murky when it comes to, well, do are you willing to criticize Donald Trump or not? She's been clear that she doesn't think Donald Trump is a candidate for this moment, but unwilling to to point out specifics beyond that deficit and that general language you saw. I don't think that's enough for the voters. That woman who asked that question to her, that voter, that voter was asking because the voter wants to make a decision. The voter is saying, look, I want to vote for you, but can you just tell me what you really think about Donald Trump? And she could not get there. Yeah. You, you sense that she wants to, right? She's like, you know who I am, right? But I have to win this primary, which begs the question. I mean, is it even, are we, are we sort of toying with the impossible here? Like, can you actually, it seems hard to fathom a Republican who's going to make it out of the primary and then somehow do well in the general election because the audiences are so radically different. And yet this new polling from the New York Times suggests that there's a sizable portion of Trump supporters who are willing to hear out the feds in terms of whether or not Donald Trump committed crimes and suggest that they think Trump should go to jail if he's found guilty. They furthermore say 25% of them, 24% say he should not be the nominee if he's convicted. How do you read those numbers? Is there more room for Trump criticism than we have been led to believe by, I don't know, Donald Trump? Yes, there is more room for Trump criticism. Look, I think that there is a little bit of a herd mentality here. Um, this Republican Party primary, uh, this crop of candidates, they all, again, with the exception of Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, made the calculus that they cannot afford to criticize Donald Trump because the voters, the base party voters still like him and they are with him. I think that that was the, a gamble and it was a wrong gamble. Presidential campaigns, every campaign, but especially a presidential, it's about contrast. 
It is a competition. And these individuals have not competed, especially if you have worked for another individual that is also vying for the same spot that you want. You have to be able to draw a contrast. And this hasn't happened. I think the voters are, are, are looking for it. These numbers, if you told someone seven months ago, these would be some of the numbers. People would tell you that, oh, I, I think you're making things up. That's poppycock. You're a little crazy. Base voters are with Donald Trump. But what this poll says to me, and if you listen to antidotes on the ground, not from super MAGA voters, I'm talking about regular Republicans, conservatives, there is a window, there is space. And it says to me that the more people hear about what Donald Trump has done, about the more they hear the specifics of the cases, the more they see, the voters don't like it. And at the end of the day, they want to vote for somebody that they think will one, win, but two, do something for them. And I don't know how much Donald Trump can do for anyone if he's behind bars. Um, if that should come to pass, and for example, Nikki Haley were able to consolidate support ahead of the nominating uh, process ending, a recent Wall Street Journal poll shows Haley beating President Biden by 17 points. What is your thought on that, Simone? <laughs> Okay, so a couple things. I don't want to give people false hope. I want to be honest. And if I am being honest, I do not see the numbers for Nikki Haley to beat Donald Trump in this primary as it is right now. The Iowa caucuses are just a, a couple weeks away at this point, Alex. Then you have New Hampshire, where she is, in fact, surging. But there's Nevada. There is a South Carolina, her home state. And then you've got Super Tuesday. And then it snowballs from there. There's a little over 2,300 delegates to be had in the Republican presidential primary. And you need at least half of them to be able to be the Republican presidential nominee. There is all this talk out there about if all these candidates drop out, consolidate, they can consolidate behind Nikki Haley. I think consolidation, and I know my friend Tim Miller has said this, only helps Donald Trump. There is no data that I have seen that supports that uh, if a Chris Christie, if a Ron DeSantis, um, they drop out Vivek Ramaswamy, that their voters automatically go to Nikki Haley. Most of the second choice for those voters is, in fact, still Donald Trump. And so someone needs to show me the math there. I think that if for some crazy way, Nikki Haley could come out on top in this presidential primary. I think that she would be a competitive um, candidate against Joe Biden. But the reality is that abortion is going to be a key driver in this general election. Abortion is not just a, a health issue. It is an economic issue. And Nikki Haley is on record in more than one space and place saying that she would sign a national abortion ban. Women do not want that. I'm thinking about Brittany Watson, Ohio, a young black woman who has just been charged with a felony because she had a miscarriage and did not fish her miscarriage out of the toilet. I'm thinking about Kate Cox. I'm thinking about all those women in Texas, women all across this country who see the Kate Coxes and the Brittany Watts of the world and understand that it could, in fact, be them. Well, you are right that that issue is going to be, I think, more determinative than we can even imagine. Simone Sanders Townsend, thank you for bringing some joy to this rock block <laughs> I know, of right? holiday news coverage. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you, my friend. Good to see you. Happy holidays, Alex. You too. Still to come tonight, an exclusive look at the ground zero of the migrant crisis in the U.S. But first, international pressure grows for a ceasefire while conditions in Gaza reach catastrophic new lows. That is next. The 
war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza is now among the deadliest and most destructive conflicts in recent memory. According to the AP, this in just two over in just over two months, Israel Israel's offensive has caused more destruction than the raising of Syria's Aleppo and Ukraine's Mariupol or the allied bombing of Germany in World War Two. The Palestinian health ministry in Gaza now says over 20,000 people have been killed. Hundreds of thousands of people are starving with little to no access to clean water and at risk of dying from infectious diseases. Today, the U.N. Security Council passed a resolution calling for urgent and extended humanitarian pauses to allow for more humanitarian aid. Now, the U.S. vetoed previous versions of this resolution, ones that included stronger language, calling for an immediate ceasefire. When the Security Council voted on the watered-down resolution, the U.S. abstained because it did not contain language condemning Hamas's October 7th attack. Following passage of the resolution, Israel's foreign minister said Israel will continue the war until the release of all the abductees and the elimination of Hamas in the Gaza Strip. This comes as the Israeli military ordered residents in several areas of central Gaza to evacuate, indicating that their offensive is expanding with no end in sight. Joining me now is Eamon Mohadeen, host of Eamon, which airs weeknights on MSNBC, of course. Um, Eamon, let's just talk about the U.N. Security Council resolution, which is more more than almost anything else, a statement of principles. And I wonder how you read the um, behavior of the United States delegation in all of this. Um, I think I read it by looking at previous votes and seeing how much the United States had become an outlier um, in the international community as a result of taking this position of not calling for a ceasefire. Keep in mind that uh, previous UN Security Council resolutions that called for a ceasefire, the U.S. vetoed them. But then they also went to the General Assembly and once again got votes uh, overwhelmingly from all the member states, with a handful of exceptions, for a ceasefire. So the United States was um, facing international pressure uh, and, and, and quite honestly, in the face of the reality that is emerging on the ground, was a situation that they could no longer just simply justify and say that we are going to allow for to continue. And that is the humanitarian aspect of this. I know that the resolution today was watered down than where it was uh, a couple of days ago, and certainly what uh, the United Arab Emirates and other countries that were voting for this wanted to see. But nonetheless, the abstention of the United States uh, some people are interpreting it as an opening, as an opening, not necessarily as a final position, but as an opening that the United States may be beginning to soften its position on allowing Israel to continue these hostilities uh, without any kind uh, of conditions being set on what happens on the ground. Yeah, let's talk more about that, because abstention is not a no, right? That's it's kind of like what happens in Congress. You just don't vote. Therefore, you're somewhere in the middle. Um, do you I mean, given the gravity of the disaster that has unfolded in Gaza, 20,000 dead, mass starvation. I mean, as Ben Rhodes was saying on the program last night, you know, death and destruction on this scale has not happened in this century. This feels like a holdover, a, a, a callback to what happened in the worst days of World War II. Um, do you think that that is finally shifting the U.S. position vis-a-vis the Netanyahu government? And, and at what point, you know, the New York Times makes the point that U.S. is still sending over 2,000-pound bombs that Israel is using to, you know, bomb civilian areas of Gaza. At what point do you think the military aid becomes part of the calculation in terms of the U.S. negotiating with Israel on its stance? 
Yeah, so there's two components to that. The first component is the fact that whether or not the United States uh, believes it and certainly whether or not the United States accepts it, the international community and certainly the Arab world and certainly the Palestinians see that the United States is co-signing every single bomb, every single missile, every single bullet that is going into Gaza. They see that because the truth is the American government is providing Israel with uh, unconditional amounts of weapons for uh, this operation. So it is providing them diplomatic cover at the United Nations, it's providing them material support in the way that it conducts this war. But here's the point that the United States had bet on Israel being successful in this campaign. And what is clearly emerging now, uh, and a lot of former military officials, both in Israel and certainly here in the United States, including the former Israeli Prime Minister, Hud Olmert, beginning to question whether or not the effectiveness of this military campaign is going to be successful in the two stated objectives. Keep in mind, these are Israel's objectives. One, to release the hostages. Two, to destroy Hamas. The only hostages that have been released so far have been a product of negotiations, not as a result of the actual bombing. In fact, three hostages were killed by Israel, and that really changed a lot of the public mood. The second component to that objective uh, is Israel's stated goal of destroying Hamas. Well, here we are, almost 12 weeks into this war. The senior leaders of Hamas are still very much operational, very much in command of the organization. That is according to the Israeli military's own assessment. They have not been killed. Israel is still uh, facing casualties on the battlefield. Uh, 11 we are so 12 weeks into this war they just had the deadliest day for their soldiers just a couple of days ago when they lost nine soldiers in Gaza so clearly those two stated objectives now are becoming uh, more scrutinized 12 weeks into this war juxtaposed against the fact that 20,000 people have been killed and I think the Americans see that and I think the Americans realize uh, this is a serious problem right now for them both on the international stage and diplomatically as well as politically for President Joe Biden. Yeah, I'll just, um, before we go, read that quote from Ehud Olmert uh, writing, I believe, uh, it, it, in the op-ed, Israel now faces a choice between ceasefire as a part of a deal that may bring home hostages alive and a ceasefire with no deal, no hostages, no apparent achievement with a total loss of the remnants of international public support. Um, it is a horror what is unfolding. Eamon Mohadeen, thank you again for your time tonight. I appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. My pleasure. Still ahead, our exclusive report from inside New York City's historic Roosevelt Hotel, ground zero for the nation's ongoing migrant crisis. That is next. This week, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott, for the first time, chartered a plane to fly 100 migrants from his state to the nation's third biggest city, Chicago. The governor has already sent thousands of migrants to New York City, some of whom arrived without knowing where they were. Right now, New York is the only major city in the country that is required by the courts to provide shelter, food, and care to anyone who needs it. This fall, we checked in with officials to see how a city like New York is handling the impossible, providing aid and shelter without enough of either. When it opened in 1924, the Roosevelt Hotel was a luxury destination. As New York City socialites flocked to the Art Deco building, an artist, Guy Lombardo, made the hotel famous for his annual rendition of Old Lang Syne. Happy New Year, everybody. A very happy New Year. 
the Roosevelt soon earned the nickname the Grand Dame of Madison Avenue. Today, a top New York City health official is calling it the new Ellis Island. Welcome to the New York City Asylum Seeker Arrival Center. Dr. Ted Long led New York City's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, alongside New York City Immigration Commissioner Manny Castro, Long is dealing with a crisis of a different kind, finding shelter for more than 140,000 migrants who have arrived in New York City in the past year and a half. So what exactly is happening here? What is this area? So when people come into the arrival center, we immediately want to give you a place to sit, offer you a meal, make sure your kids are attended to. Then you come up here and this is where you register. Registration is what's your name and how big is your family so that we know exactly how many families are here and how big the families are. So that as rooms become available in New York City, we know who can get placed there immediately. Under the chandeliers in the main lobby where New Yorkers once hobnobbed, immigrants now wait to be registered. They are exhausted, they are worried, Many have made dangerous treks to get here. And now they need a place to stay. The number of rooms we have available across New York City at this given moment is zero. That's why we have so many people in the lobby now. That's our So work. none of these people have a place to sleep tonight? Correct. None of them do. And currently, it's not an exaggeration, we have zero rooms across New York City for families with children. Outside of the hotel, hundreds more wait to be processed. There are no beds available, but a consent decree requires New York City to offer anyone and everyone shelter. Think about this for a moment, New Yorkers. We have a policy in place right now that states you can come from anywhere on the globe. Come to New York City and we have to pay for your food, shelter, clothing for as long as you want. When does it reach a point where it says it's not sustainable? How many a day are you getting? Last week there was a day where we got a thousand, over a thousand people. So we're seeing a surge and, and that is just, to us it's unsustainable because our city was not set up to manage a humanitarian crisis of this magnitude for this long. More than 2.4 million people have crossed the southern border in the past year. A recent spike brought on in part by the end of a COVID-era policy that turned back migrants at the border. Thousands of them are now in New York City. Joel Hernandez is one of them. Like millions of others, Hernandez left Venezuela to escape food scarcity and poverty. It took him almost four years to make it to the U.S., but when Hernandez finally arrived at the southern border last year, he had no idea he would end up in New York. A free bus ticket made the decision for him. When I was in the center of detention, 
ellos me preguntaron que si yo tenía pasaje y, y realmente no tenía la cantidad de dinero para llegar acá y ellos me llevaron a una, a una fundación que es como una iglesia donde estaban mandando a diferentes lugares, Miami, eh, Washington, D.C. y Nueva York. Y yo escogí Nueva York porque aquí era donde estaba mi hermano. Hernandez now works as a delivery driver in a city he barely knows. Cuando veníamos, lo único que sabíamos al respecto de eso era que era una ciudad santuaria donde los inmigrantes eran protegidos y no los podían deportar. Since the spring of 2022, Republican governors have been sending often unsuspecting migrants to liberal cities using human beings as pawns to exact political revenge and hoping to provoke an anti-immigrant backlash. They put out policies self-proclaiming that they're sanctuary cities. And they love to promote these liberal ideologies until they have to actually live up and apply them. This past weekend, there was a night where between 11 p.m. and 7 a.m., we had seven unannounced buses from Texas arrive overnight. Were those buses that were sent by the governor? No, those are buses that were sent by the governor and the cities of Texas. Clearly, Texas wants to make a point, but what are we to do? Let people sleep in the street? You know, they always get to fake news media right back there. This has been a live issue on the presidential campaign trail, where Donald Trump has been stoking anti-immigrant fear for political profit. We know they're terrorists. It is a very sad thing for our country. Uh, it's poisoning the blood of our country. That sort of language has been echoed across the country. This year, even Mayor Eric Adams, a Democrat, has come under fire for rhetoric critics call dangerous for immigrants. This issue will destroy New York City. Adams has further described migrants as financial burdens for New York taxpayers. If I raise your taxes because anyone on the globe that wants to come to New York City can stay here for the, forever, and the federal government is saying it's on our tab, listen, idealism collides with realism all the time. The realism is we are out of room. We are I'm the daughter of immigrants. Yep. This is an immigrant city. Yeah. New York City wants to, in theory, welcome immigrants. But the mayor's rhetoric around immigrants, and specifically this group of migrants, has been very abrasive in recent months. And I understand the frustration and the desire for the federal government to intervene in more formal capacity. But do you at all worry that the messaging from City Hall has not been actually that welcoming to the immigrants who will find themselves here? Well, we've been saying this for over a year, that we need help. We have to say it in a way that people, you know, pay attention. To guarantee beds for every asylum seeker who comes to New York City, more than 200 new city-funded emergency shelters have popped up all over the city. Most people assume that this is, this is being done by the federal government, and, and we're, we're doing it in, in New York City. And we're hoping that this can be used as a model to be replicated everywhere else in the country. Yeah. But in the meantime, you know, we can't be the only ones. The Biden administration is helping. We've already delivered over $1 billion that Congress appropriated to states and cities receiving immigrants. But New York City officials say it's not nearly enough. The city has already spent more than $2 billion to house and care for newcomers since the spring of 2022. It is expected to spend $12 billion over three fiscal years.
they only gave us a little over a hundred million dollars to pay for this. In September, the Biden administration eased pressure on would-be migrants by offering temporary protected status to more than 470,000 Venezuelans already in the U.S. That status allows them to obtain work permits, but some DHS officials worry this might prompt more migration from elsewhere. In the meantime, everyone else is left in limbo. Me piden papeles de trabajo. Digo, pero si no tengo, aunque sea salir, aunque sea trabajar una horita, algo, pero ya me sirve para algo para comer. Every asylum seeker we communicated with said, we don't want anything free from New York. We just want to be able to contribute to the city. People who call New York City home represent more than 200 nationalities. Many came through the southern border, were processed at the Roosevelt Hotel, and are now the newest New Yorkers. This is Turkish, right? Yeah, it looks like Turkish or Ukrainian because we serve a lot of Ukrainian. For now, the Roosevelt Hotel is the only arrival center in New York City. The work is hard, but welcoming migrants is a reminder of what has always made America, America. We will be right back. We're nearing the end of the year, which for most of us signifies the holiday season, but for sitting U.S. presidents, it is pardoning season. At the end of the calendar year, presidents typically use their pardon power as an expression of forgiveness, sort of a, a lesson in empathy. For Donald Trump, his pardon list included Steve Bannon and Paul Manafort and Charles Kushner and Roger Stone, which is Donald Trump's version of a lesson in forgiveness and empathy, I guess. Today, President Biden announced his pardon list, 11 people he is granting clemency. And if you do not recognize their names, that is because they are not political allies of the president. They also didn't engage in efforts to overturn a presidential election. They have that in common. These are just people who deserved a second chance and who were granted that second chance as part of an effort the president first announced a little over a year ago. As I said when I ran for president, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states. And criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, to educational opportunities. Too many lives have been upended because of our failed approach to marijuana. It's time that we right these wrongs. That was President Biden just before the 2022 midterm, announcing a sweeping pardon for thousands of people convicted of marijuana possession under federal law. And today, President Biden took it a step further, building upon last year's action by pardoning thousands more who were convicted of use and possession of marijuana on federal land. The White House says that this move is meant to help thousands overcome hurdles to finding employment and housing. But it's also evidence of a profound shift in this country when it comes to recreational use of marijuana, which is now legal in 24 states, more than half the population of the United States. Even Republicans, who normally waste no opportunity to criticize President Biden, have mostly stayed mum on this issue. For both the people granted clemency here and American politics on whole, you might call it a Christmas miracle. That is our show for this evening. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.